0: A few Wednesday nights ago, we looked at how Abraham interceded for his nephew Lot and others as well in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he asked God if he would spare the city if there were 50 righteous and then all the way down to 10. And in the context of Abraham's discussion with God, he asked this question. He says, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? And this is an important question. Sometimes we feel as though God does not deal justly. And tonight I want us to look at the passage that we read in our scripture reading, Jeremiah 25, and see how the Bible describes circumstances in which God rightly judges. This morning we saw the positive side of God's judgment. God assessed his people to be worthy of his kingdom. Uh, and then tonight I want us to look and see the other side of God's judgment. When God pours out his wrath against sin, is he right to do so? Who does he do it against, and why is he right to do so against those groups? And so as we look together at Jeremiah 25, I think we'll see first that God is right to judge his people who disobey him. First of all, because disobedience means rejecting God's word. So to set it in context, the word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, this was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of, Jeru- of Judea and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, From the thirteenth year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, even to this day, these twenty-three years, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken to you again and again, but you have not listened. So what do we see from this verse regarding the fact of the disobedience of the Israelites? It means rejecting God's word. What was God's word? God's word was the message that he had revealed through his messenger, in this case, the prophet Jeremiah. How long had Jeremiah brought this message? For 23 years. And like other Old Testament prophets, he had two primary responsibilities. The first was to remind the people of truth that God had already revealed about himself. According to the things that God had already given the Israelites in the law, of Moses and and the rest of the scripture that they had up to that point they were condemned because they were disobeying what they already knew but Jeremiah also was prophesying foretelling what was going to happen if they continued and so those were the two functions of a prophet in Israel to tell what God had already said often as a warning to the people and then to tell what God was going to do in connection primarily with the people's disobedience why do I say that, God's, uh, that they were disobedient? Because God's word demands a response of obedience. He says, I have spoken to you again and again, but you have not listened. What would have the sign been if they had followed what Jeremiah was saying? They would have turned away from their sin and turned back to God. They failed to do that. They were rejecting God's word. Unless we think that they were just rejecting God's word because they didn't like Jeremiah for some reason... Jeremiah brings an argument against them, a condemnation against them, that points out the fact that it wasn't just Jeremiah that they had rejected. Look at the next verse. The Lord had sent to you all his servants, the prophets, again and again, but you have not listened nor inclined your ear to hear. And so disobedience not only means rejecting God's word, but it means rejecting God's word sometimes regardless of the source through which God's word comes. We see from verse 4 that God's word had come repeatedly to the people. What were some of the other prophets they had rejected? Joel, Isaiah, Micah, even some of the lesser-known ones like Hananiah in 2 Chronicles 16. And we do see a brief instance of them listening to another of the lesser-known prophets, uh, Shemaiah in 2 Chronicles 11 and 12, but they quickly turned back and disobeyed God again. God's word required them to repent. Look at verse 5. Saying, turn now everyone from his evil way and from the evil of your deeds and dwell in the land which the Lord has given to you and your forefathers forever and ever. So God told the people of Judah specifically to stop sinning by turning away from their specific acts of sin. He says, turn now everyone from his evil way and from the evil of your deeds and dwell on the land which the Lord has given to you. Remember the promises that God made to them in the book of Deuteronomy? If you remain in the land and follow my word, I will bless you. I will pour out my blessing on you. But if you reject me and turn away from my word, I will add to you all of these curses that, are, that the people recited on the mountain and the people refused to listen. God warned them in verse 6. Do not go after other gods to serve them and to worship them. So God said, not only have you refused to follow all of the aspects of the law that I've commanded you in the land where I've placed you, you've turned aside to other gods. Beyond turning after other gods, they had made idols. Do not provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. And over and over again, in the prophets, especially in Isaiah and Jeremiah, God warned the people about the foolishness of idolatry. You cut down a tree, you burn half of it to keep yourself warm, to bake your bread. The other half you make into an idol. What foolishness is that? And yet the people repeatedly turned after idols. Sometimes it was idolatry of saying, I'm going to worship God through the form of an idol, like the people did uh, in the presence of Moses, uh, Aaron. And then Moses comes down from the mountain and sees them worshiping in that way. They said, here's God. And God said, don't worship me that way. Don't worship me the way that the Egyptians worship their gods, by means of an idol. And then many other times it was adopting the idols of the, and the false gods of the people around them. And the people of Judah here specifically had been warned time and again, stop sinning, stop committing. Uh, following after other gods, stop committing idolatry, and they did not listen. God was willing to spare them. Look at the last phrase of verse 6. I will do you no harm. What? If they had repented, God said, I will do you no harm. And that's remarkable because the fact that they had already sinned meant that they already deserved God's punishment. And yet God was saying, in my mercy, I will spare you that punishment if you had turned aside. But they would not. What did their refusal mean? Look at verse 7. Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, in order that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. So their failure to listen to God's word through God's messenger, Jeremiah, meant that God was stirred up to anger, provoked to anger with the work of their hands, with their idolatry, to what end? To their own harm. So what does this mean? Disobedience not only involved rejecting God's messenger, it not only involved rejecting God's message through a variety of messengers, rejecting God's word and the sin of the people here, their disobedience meant that God had to punish his own people that he had called by his name. Look at verse 8. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, and in that name I think we are reminded of the fact that God is a God of armies and of power, and the people would have done well to be warned that here's a powerful God. Your God is great, and he's a God who has a relationship with you as the people of Israel, but he is also a powerful God. So don't take him lightly. What does he say? Because you have not obeyed my words, I will send and take all the families of the north. Uh, That that second phrase of verse 8, just focus on that for a moment. The basis of the punishment was what? The basis of the punishment was their disobedience. Because you have not obeyed my words, it is possible for those in authority in our world today to punish those under them just on a whim I've had a bad day I didn't like what you were doing I didn't like the way you looked at me something like that those in authority today can punish those under them just on a whim just because they feel like it God never does that God punished them on the basis of their specific disobedience the nature of the punishment was severe look at verses 9 and 10 I will send and take all the families of the north, declares the Lord, and I will send Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land and against its inhabitants and against all the nations round about, and I will utterly destroy them and make them a horror and a hissing and an everlasting destruction. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones and the light of the lamp, This whole land will be a desolation and a horror, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So what is God saying here? God is going to send destruction using even a pagan nation. And here is the irony, I think, for me, to look at what God's doing here. The people of Babylon were clearly idolaters themselves. And yet God is sending them against his own people who have been committing idolatry to punish his own people. And what happens? Destruction and shame in verse 9. I will utterly destroy them, make a horror and a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. And then, it will result in sorrow. Look at verse 10. I will take from them the voice of joy and the voice of gladness. So, times of rejoicing, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride... And even the normal circumstances of life, the sound of the millstones and the light of the lamp, there would be such upheaval that even the normal rhythms of life, going to work and grinding grain with the millstones, working by the light of the lamp in their culture where they didn't have electricity and those sorts of things, the normal patterns of life would be interrupted because of God's judgment. And he says these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years this punishment would extend for decades. It wasn't just uh, something for days or weeks or months. It was going to last decades. So if we stopped at this point, we might think, well, that's not fair for God to punish His own people. What about the other nations that were sinning around them? And we tend to have this mindset. If we get into trouble, we tend to look at everybody else around us and say, but they're doing wrong too. And lest we think that God punished His people but spared the nations around that were sinning, let's continue looking at the chapter. Look at verse 12. And I think we'll see in the second part of the chapter that God is right to judge all those who disobey Him. And He can judge even those that He's used in the past. Look at verse 12. Then it will be when 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, declares the Lord, for their iniquity in the land of the Chaldeans, and I will make it an everlasting desolation. I will bring upon that land all my words, which I have pronounced against it, all that is written in this book, which Jeremiah has prophesied against all the nations. For many nations and great kings will make slaves of them, even them, and I will recompense them according to their deeds and according to the works of their hands. So God can use even a wicked nation to accomplish his purpose. Babylon had been his instrument, would be his instrument, uh, from Jeremiah's perspective, to punish the nation of Judah. Babylon was a wicked nation. And yet he describes the king of Babylon as, in verse 9, my servant. We say, how can God say that the king of a wicked pagan nation is his servant? In the sense that God rules over all things, and God bends all things according to his will. He uses similar language to describe uh, Cyrus of Persia later on when he sends his people back. Cyrus, my servant. We'll send the people back. Did he honor God? Did he follow God? No. Well, we might look at, at uh, Nebuchadnezzar and we say, "Well, didn't Nebuchadnezzar come to trust in God? And the answer would be yes. But when did that take place? It took place n- near the end of his life, after he had already taken Daniel, taken Daniel and the, his three friends and all the rest of the people of Judah into captivity. And so Nebuchadnezzar did eventually serve God truly as one of his people as well as his servant. But at this time that Jeremiah is looking forward to, Nebuchadnezzar is not doing it for God, he's doing it for himself to conquer the nations around to build his empire. Even so, God would not spare a nation that continued in wickedness. Consider what it says in Daniel uh, 5, I believe it is, when um, the the judgment comes against Nebuchadnezzar's descendant, Belteshazzar. Remember? The, the writing on the wall, you might have heard this story in Sunday school, Meeny Meeny Tuckle You Farson. We look at that, we say, what does that mean? What does it mean? God was bringing judgment against the nation of Babylon. Why? Not just because of their present wickedness, but because of what he had prophesied back here in Jeremiah chapter 25. And so I think it's good for us to recall that God will keep his word regarding judgment just as much as God keeps his word regarding blessing. I already mentioned Deuteronomy 28. I think we also see from these verses that God judges without favoritism. So he highlights the nation of Babylon, this nation that he has already used, but it's not just Babylon that God has a grievance against, we could say. Look at verse 15. For thus the Lord, the God of Israel, says to me, Take this cup of the wine of wrath from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it, They will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I will send among them. So God's judgment would be overwhelming for those who received it. The wrath is His wrath against sin. He has this imagery of a a cup, and He's saying that that all the nations will drink it. It's interesting to see this imagery uh, repeated again, for example, in Revelation 16 and verse 19. That same phrase is used, the cup of the wine of the wrath of God. What does that signify? Look at the end of verse 16, because of the sword that I will send among them. And so it's probably best to understand this here as a symbolic act that Jeremiah did. It's possible that he went around to all of the nations that are mentioned here later on. Uh, we would tend to question whether he would have been given access into the courts of Pharaoh of Egypt and, and all of these other nations, but it's possible that he did so. But it's also possible, in light of chapter 27, that there were representatives of those nations in uh, Jerusalem at the time, and that he went around to the representatives of those nations and symbolically offered them this cup of wine as a sign of God's judgment. And he says, you will drink this. And we see this in, uh, in verse 17. I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom the Lord had sent me to drink it. Was all the kingdoms, every kingdom in the world? Well, let's look at the list of kingdoms that he lists out. Verse 18 Jerusalem, the cities of Judah, and its kings and its princes, to make them a ruin, a horror, a hissing, and a curse, as it is to this day. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, his servants, his princes, and all his people, and all the foreign people, all the kings of the land of Uz, the kings of the land of the Philistines, Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, and the remnant of Ashdod, Edom, Moab, and the sons of Ammon, all the kings of Tyre, the kings of Sidon, the kings of the coastlands, which are beyond the sea, and and Timah, Buzz, and all who cut the corners of their hair, and all the kings of Arabia, and all the kings of the foreign people who dwell in the desert, and all the kings of Zimri, all the kings of Elam, and the kings of Media, and all the kings of the north, near and far, one with another, and all the kingdoms of the earth, which are upon the face of the ground, and the king of Shishak shall drink after them. So does this include all of the, the kingdoms of the world? It seems to be a fairly exhaustive list, and it seems to be closed or bookended by Babylon. Why do I say Babylon in verse 26? Because he has the same reference to kings of the north that he had in uh, in verse 9 and then Jeremiah fifty one forty one in a in a form of parallelism refers both to Babylon and Shishak as though they are the same thing and so he has this list he says I'm going to judge Babylon and then I'm going to judge all of these other nations and then he closes again with Babylon to, to close out that section I think it's important to note that God's judgment in this passage will be inescapable. Why do I say that? Look at verse 27. You shall say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, drink, be drunk, vomit, and fall, and rise no more because of the sword which I will send among you. So he's saying, you will be forced to accept this even if you don't want it. And verse 28, and it will be... If they refuse to take the cup from your hand to drink, then you will say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, You shall surely drink. And that's why I think that the people who take this as, as perhaps a vision or just something that, that Jeremiah saw perhaps miss the force of this verse. It seems as though Jeremiah went around either to the kings themselves or to representatives of those nations, offered them this cup. Some of them refused. And Jeremiah was to say to them in the case where they refused, You shall surely drink of it. Why? verse 29 for behold I am beginning to work calamity in this city which is called by my name and shall you be completely free from punishment you will not be free from punishment for I am summoning a sword against all the inhabitants of the earth declares the Lord of hosts and what's the significance of this if God was going to punish his own people that were called by his name regardless of their sinfulness they were his people if God was going to punish his own people Why would the nations around Jerusalem, around Judah, around the the kingdom of Israel and Judah think that they would escape God's judgment? If God was willing to judge even his own people, God would be willing to judge all of these nations as well. And so if God is going to judge his own people and God is going to judge the surrounding nations, I think we also see from this passage that God is right in his final judgment on the earth. And I recognize some take verses 30 to 38 to have been fulfilled at the time Uh, shortly after Jeremiah brought the prophecy. And this is certainly a question when we look at these prophecies in the Old Testament. Does this apply to the time when the prophet is speaking or shortly thereafter? Does it apply to some distant time in the future? And this is something that takes a great deal of study, a great deal of understanding to see how all these things fit together. And so uh, I, I I am willing to recognize that there are people who say that this is Uh, was fulfilled in the Babylonian captivity of Judah. And yet there are features of these last eight verses that I think don't fit with what we know of what what took place in that time period. There's another explanation that doesn't require an either-or. There's an explanation that says, well, it was fulfilled both in that time and will be fulfilled in the end times. The concern that I have with that line of thinking, even though it's a a prevalent one in our day, is this. If it meant something at that time, and now it also means something different now, I think we have to, uh, specifically, if God says, I'm going to do this thing for this group of people, and then he changes and he says, now I'm going to do that thing for a different group of people, if the object is changed, if uh, if the time is changed, then I think at some level it calls into question, was God in some way misleading the people to whom he originally gave the prophecy? And so, while it is theoretically possible that it was fulfilled at that time or that it will be fulfilled in the future, I'm not sure that we can say it was fulfilled at both times. So some of these passages are referring to events that were going to take place shortly from the perspective of when they were given, Some of them refer to events that would take place that are still yet future, even from our perspective. At minimum, Jeremiah 25 reminds us in this section of the concept of the Day of the Lord. And the Day of the Lord is a broad concept that we see in the prophets. It's certainly not something that we can study exhaustively tonight. But why do I say there are parallels? Because the Day of the Lord involves judgment in certain passages, it involves specifically the phrase day of the Lord In other passages it seems to have a reference to that day or in this day in connection with God's judgment and so I want us to look at a couple of parallel passages to uh, understand what God is doing here I think we have to recognize first of all that it is clear from Scripture that God has judged various the earth at various points in the past so look at uh, Psalm 79 Turn over to Psalm 79. Psalm 79 says this, and just as an aside, the title is a lament over the destruction of Jerusalem and a prayer for help. I think that we can see the titles in Psalms as accurate. I'm not sure that we would see them as inspired, but I do think that they are accurate and helpful. And in this case, clearly the context would support that. Look at verse 1. O God, the nations have invaded your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the dead bodies of your servants for food to the birds of the heavens, the flesh of your godly ones to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water around about Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We have become a reproach to our neighbors, a scoffing and a derision to those around us. How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your wrath upon the nations which do not know you and upon the kingdoms which do not call upon your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. So what do we see in this passage? God kept his promise. He overthrew Jerusalem using Babylon. He brought the destruction that was promised because the people did not repent. This seems to be the destruction that was anticipated, for example, in Jeremiah 16, where God says to Jeremiah, don't marry, don't settle down in this land because judgment is coming. So God overthrew Jerusalem. God also overthrew Babylon. He did this using the Medes and Persians, and I mentioned that a few moments ago, but you see that particularly in Daniel 5, verses 30 to 31. And that was described in Jeremiah in verses 12 through 14. So in these instances, and in others that we can look at, it is clear that God's judgment has been poured out against nations in the past, against specifically the nation of Israel and the nation of Babylon. Should we describe past judgments as part of the day of the Lord, or as one of several days of the Lord, or seeing the day of the Lord as this broad span of time that has certain periods of intensity in which God judges a particular nation. I think it's probably best to look at it this way. God pouring out judgment on the wicked throughout history, in part, anticipates and looks forward to the time when he will fully and finally judge all nations in the last days. And so these historical judgments of Jerusalem and of Babylon were actual and real judgments of God against sin, but they were not the full and final outpouring of God's wrath against sin. And so we see, I think, in Jeremiah 25, if you would turn back there, that God will judge the earth in the last days. Even for those who would take this passage to refer to Jeremiah's time shortly after that I think we would have to recognize that God's pouring out his wrath in the final days is the day of the Lord whether you include past judgments and the last day events or whether you include the whole scope of things clearly the end part of it is the day of the Lord we don't see however that phrase the day of the Lord used here what do we see we see the phrase that day used uh, several times in the passage why do I say that this refers to the end times? Because look at the scope of what God is doing here. He says, You will prophesy against them all these words and say to them, The Lord will roar from on high. Look at, look at several of these things. He says, A clamor has come to the end of the earth. The Lord has a controversy with the nations. He is entering into judgment with all flesh. And then he says in verse 32, A great storm is being stirred up from the remotest parts of the earth. And then in verse 33, Those slain by the Lord on that day will be from one end of the earth to the other. Now, were there those who were slain when Babylon came against Jerusalem, against the nation of Judah? Yes. We saw that in Psalm 79. Would it be proper to describe that as extending to the ends of the earth? Only if you take the ends of the earth as as being confined to a fairly narrow geographical place. And clearly there were many more nations than just Judah in existence at that time, and so uh, we, if we compare this passage with what it says, for example, in Revelation 19. Let me read that briefly for you. It says in Revelation 19, this. It says, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army, and the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, and those who had worshipped his image, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. Verse 21 is the key verse here, I think. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. And so you have this massive gathering. The kings of the earth and their armies are gathered to make war against Christ, coming as king. And they are wiped out with the sword, and it says that the the birds ate their fill of their flesh, which I think parallels where it says in verse 33, those slain by the Lord on that day will be from one end of the earth to the other. Now, there are also parallels to what we sang this morning, Psalm 2, that God and His anointed are, are against the nations. He has a controversy with the nations. Now, all nations are listed here, and this is a further thing to consider. All nations are listed here. Have all nations experienced this destruction? We see that Judah experienced this destruction. We see that Babylon experienced this destruction. Have we seen that destruction in the course of history poured out against all of the nations that God listed? There are some who perhaps would argue yes, but I think to the scope that is described in Revelation 19, I think we would have to say no. Regardless of the scope, the destruction of the judgment is clearly described as terrible. Why? People will die and there will be no one to bury them. In verse 33, even the powerful will not escape. Look at verse 35, flight will perish from the shepherds. Or verse 34, wail you shepherds. Who are the shepherds? These are the leaders of Israel, the leaders specifically of Judah, I should say, who have failed to to hold the people accountable for their idolatry. And what has God said to them? You have let the people go on in their idolatry. You are not going to escape punishment either. Their seemingly secure refuge is going to be destroyed. It says in verse 36, the Lord is destroying their pasture. The imagery is this. You're a shepherd and you think everything is fine and someone comes and wipes out the the pasture. What are you the shepherd of? Nothing. They were going to be carried away in captivity like the rest of the people of Israel. They were going to be taken from their position of authority. They were going to be punished by God for their disobedience. And their sphere of influence, their realm was going to be Emptied. Look at verse 37. The peaceful folds are made silent. Again, going back to the imagery. Here's the shepherd, here's the the sheepfold, the pasture. It's like the pasture is burned to the ground. The sheep are gone. The fold is empty. The shepherds have nothing to do. They themselves have been swept away. And so God is using this imagery and saying, you've been terrible shepherds. You think that God's going to spare you. He's not. Just like the people will be punished for their idolatry, the leaders will be punished for their idolatry as well. And this happened at least in part when Babylon overthrew Judah and the Persians overthrew Babylon. Uh, Verse 38, God will arise like a lion. He has left his hiding place like the lion, for their land has become a horror because of the fierceness of the oppressing sword and because of his fierce anger. Think about the people during the Babylonian captivity, those few people that were left in the land. They were alone. They were at the mercy of their neighbors. Think about even when, when Nehemiah comes back to rebuild the, the wall and, and, all, and all of those things, just the, the disarray that the nation was in. That was the state that they were in because of their, um, because of their disobedience. And so I think that God is warning the leaders of Israel about a future judgment and about their present judgment to to a certain extent to say are you going to turn from your sin or are you going to keep following your own way and we know from history that they did not turn what's the only proper response to this passage turn away from sin don't love it don't Don't let it deceive you. As it says in Galatians, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. We will reap what we sow. If we don't turn away from our sin, we face God's judgment. We say, well, God's going to judge those who are not His people. Yes, but if God even judged His own people of Israel and Judah, do we think that God will take our sin lightly even if we belong to Him? We need to call other people around us to heed this message as well. Why? Because if they do not repent, they face God's wrath, even as we looked at this morning. And so did God deal justly? Yes. Why? He punished His own people, but after He had given them time, and again, opportunities to repent. Was God just in punishing the nations around Judah? Yes. Again, they saw what happened to judah they had opportunity to say if god would punish even his own people surely i ought to turn from my sin but they didn't and so i think the warning stands and god's judgment is that are we going to learn from what god did to israel are we going to learn from what god did to babylon are we going to pay attention to what god will do to all of the nations of the earth in an even greater degree than he did in the time following Jeremiah do we believe these things and this is one of many reasons why i think it's good for us to look at the old testament because sometimes we sometimes we don't think that god is as powerful as he is or we don't think that god we don't see the scope and the extent to which god keeps his promises but as we look at a passage like this Will the judge of all the earth deal justly? He will. So what's the question for us? How is God going to judge me? Am I following Him, or am I going my own way? The only deliverance from what Jeremiah is describing here is that we cast ourselves on Christ, and we follow Him wholeheartedly, and we don't turn back. And so that's, I think, what we would be called to do from looking at this passage tonight. Let's pray. Lord, Abraham asked you if you would deal uh, justly. Sometimes it's easy for us to say, what you do in the world is not fair. But as we consider this passage, we see that the question that we should more often be asking is not why does God bring bad into the lives of people that ourselves and those we see around us but rather why does why do you uh, why do you bring any good into our lives knowing that we are sinful even as these groups were described here lord we don't deserve your kindness we don't deserve your mercy we deserve your wrath and you have spared us in christ if we are trusting in You today, Lord, help us not to take that lightly. To be uh, freed from the terror of facing Your wrath is a a wonderful and amazing thing. But Lord, it should never cause us to be uh, half-hearted in the way that we follow You. Help us to see the, the seriousness of these things. Help us to to hate sin to such a degree that we wouldn't uh, try to sweep it under the rug and say it's not a big deal. If you you would send your people into captivity for 70 years and, and blot out other nations because of sin, it's something that we shouldn't take lightly, Lord. Lord, help this cause us to have compassion on those that are around us. Help us not to want this for them, but to recognize that this is their direction that they are heading, Lord. Help us to plead with them that they might hear your truth and turn to you and be saved, even with all the ends of the earth. Lord, help us to seek that even as we sang, that that they would be part of the joyous throng from every tribe and tongue and nation that is gathered before your throne, praising you and rejoicing in you. Lord, give us a burden to see people saved that way. Give us a fervent desire to follow you faithfully ourselves. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to do that even this week. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.